0: there's a nip in the air. The nights are drawing in, and you might be thinking about turning the heating on. But one in every four pounds that we spend heating our homes is actually wasted. The heat leaks right back out again.
1: Homes that leak energy cost money. Destroying our planet's habitability costs money. It costs us a fortune in treating preventable health conditions. In 2016, a pilot in the northeast found that insulating the homes of patients with chronic pulmonary diseases cut the number of GP admissions by 60% and the number of hospital admissions by 30%.
0: The UK has the draftiest and oldest housing in Western Europe, and our gas boilers pump out twice as much carbon dioxide as all of the country's power stations. It doesn't matter who you are, it doesn't matter where you live. No one wants to go to a home that's cold, that's damp, that's drafty. No one wants to rely on fossil fuels that pollute their climate, that pollute their communities, that pollute their atmosphere. So, do we need to upgrade the UK's homes? Why is our housing powering the climate crisis? And how can we make sure everyone's home is warm, clean and green, whether we rent a flat or own a castle?
2: Something people aren't
1: talking about is the amount of gas we use in our homes. And for many, many years now, we've been talking about reducing that through insulation, retrofit, energy efficiency, now heat pumps. So really, the government needs to invest both in renewables, but also in energy efficiency.
0: In one fell swoop, we are improving homes, reducing fuel bills, and therefore putting money in people's pockets, so tackling fuel poverty, and then also food poverty. Welcome to the Weekly Economics Podcast. This week, we're asking, how do we get warmer homes and a cooler planet? I'm Aisha Thomas-Smith, recording this podcast from my house. Stay with us. So this week, I'm really pleased to be joined down the line by returning friend of the pod, Chaitanya Kumar, head of Environment and the Green Transition, it's mouthful, at the New Economics Foundation. Hi, Chatty.
1: Hi, Aisha. Good to be back.
0: Thanks for being with us. And I'm also really pleased to have Martin Heath with us, Director of Basingstoke Energy Services Co-op. Hi, Martin.
2: Oh, yeah. No, it's great to be here. It's, uh, looking
0: forward to the conversation. Me too. Yeah. So let's jump in because we've got lots to get through. So, Shati, this week at NEF at the New Economics Foundation, you launched something called the Great Homes
1: Upgrade. Could
0: you give us a quick overview of what this is?
1: Certainly. I must say it has a nice ring to it, if I say so myself. I love the Great yeah. Homes Upgrade. <laughs> <laughs> um, it's essentially a nationwide retrofitting program to upgrade our leaky housing stock As you mentioned, we've got one of the leakiest housing stocks in Western Europe. We lose a lot of heat, especially in the winter, which isn't great. So this campaign is essentially how do we upgrade about 19 million homes across the UK by 2030? And we ratchet up to that date with about 7 million by 2025. It's essentially a bold, necessary, and what we think an eminently sensible campaign to upgrade our housing stock. The key motivation for us is this is one of those things that tackles multiple crises at the same time. We've got the crisis of climate, which we're all aware of acutely, even more so these days. We've got an energy bills crisis. And then we've got this crisis of a lot of families in fuel poverty, a lot of families in living in sort of damp, cold homes, uncomfortable homes, basically. So the question of comfort is another key crisis that we've got. So I think it tackles all of these three at once, if you can get a housing stock upgraded to a decent standard.
0: Brilliant. I mean, yeah, it also seems certainly very topical with the universal credit cut this week and folks talking about choosing, you know, between heating and eating and those kind of things. If you're losing, you know, a good chunk of the energy that you're even able to pay for, then that certainly seems like something we should be addressing quite imminently. Martin, you run Basingstoke Energy Services Co-op. Can you explain what you do?
2: Yeah, I mean, I'm involved in two organisations, both with a a strong community focus. I mean, uh, Basingstoke Energy Co-op, as the name suggests, we are a cooperative, so we're owned by our members. Our members are our customers. So what we mainly do historically is design and install renewable energy systems. So most of our work has been around solar PV. And that ranges from putting uh, the solar panels on people's roofs, ranging from small houses right up to large warehouses. I'm also involved with another organization called Your Energy, Your Way. That's a community interest company, and we are focused mainly on trying to increase diversity in the construction industry. We just encourage young people and and particularly women into the industry. But um, again, the focus there is more on heat pumps. It's about designing, installing and maintaining heat pumps. But increasingly now, we're beginning to be aware that there is no point in putting renewable energy systems and heat pumps into houses or any sort of building that is incredibly leaky. There's much heat you put in, it just leaks straight back out again. So you're increasingly now getting involved in helping customers retrofit their houses. And really, just to show that put our money where our mouth is, um, I've, I literally took my house, my own house, which is, was a very traditional 1960s built block and brick house on a concrete slab, uh, which when we started the project was uh, an EPC D grade, and we've taken that up to a pretty good B, and we still got a little bit more to do there. So hopefully we can push that into an A-rated EPC building. So we've got a lot, you know, beginning to build that experience of what retrofitting is about. But I should say, just to build up on those other things, it's, it's not just about climate change. Clearly, if we can retrofit our houses, it's also about fuel poverty, and increasingly about making houses more healthy to live in because cold damp houses are not the places that anyone wants to live.
0: Absolutely so just so I know we're going to hear retrofitting quite a lot in this episode so just to make sure I know what we're talking about so essentially it's kind of upgrading your home and making it more energy efficient and the scale that that's measured against is something called the EPC tell us a bit more about that.
2: Yeah. Energy Performance Certificate. Yeah. Sorry. It's, yeah, like most industries, lots of jargon around. Just just ask ask me if I'm, I'm using that. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> will do. Yeah. I'm sure you will. Yeah. So yeah, Energy per- Performance Certificate just measures how much energy goes into a home and how efficiently that energy is used. And then also calculates the carbon footprint of that energy use. So and, you know, how much heating goes in, how much of that is leaking out and where it's leaking out. But I think also the retrofitting, I think, is not only about energy efficiency. It's not just about mitigating climate change i.e. by reducing carbon emissions. It's also about adaptation. And I think one of the things we've got to start to learn very quickly is we've got to start adapting our housing stock to be able to deal with a much wetter and a much warmer climate. So it's not just about making them better in energy wise, but how are we going to make them more resilient to the climate we're going to face, or all of us are going to face in the next 20, 30, 40 years? You know, how do we put in solar shading? How do we put in passive cooling? Those sorts of things. But in terms of just energy efficiency, it's mainly about really three things. It's about making a house better insulated, because clearly that stops some of the heat getting out making it far better in terms of draft proofing because about 30, 40 or 50 percent of the heat of a house leaks through air leaking out of the building. And then talking about replacing the energy that's required with renewables.
0: Okay. One thing that occurred to me was, Chatty, the government seems pretty confident in using hydrogen as a clean fuel to power our homes. So why don't we do that instead of replacing our boilers? I feel like you're going to have an answer for me.
1: I do, yes. Um, I suppose the short answer is it is too damn expensive, and it hasn't been tested at scale. Because The challenge, of course, is the climate crisis demands urgency. We all know that, but what the government is talking about when it comes to hydrogen is essentially plans about a decade from now, 15 years from now, large-scale hydrogen perhaps could be a reality in 2035 and beyond. So that is not really talking about the urgency that is really kicking the can down the road. But you don't have to take my word for it. Literally yesterday at the Conservative Party conference, a minister from the Business, Energy and Industrial Strategy Department in government, Lord Callahan, essentially came out and said the same thing, that if anybody out there is suggesting that hydrogen will power all our homes, then, you know, basically saying it's impossible. And it's a pipe dream that we can power all our homes with hydrogen. Now, in an alternative world, if you have invested in hydrogen 20 years ago and really caught up to scale, perhaps that could have been an alternative. But at this stage, for domestic housing, hydrogen isn't really a reality. It is, however, I must sort of caveat this for those listening who are really hydrogen fans, I suppose, is that it does have a role in certain sectors of the economy. Perhaps in shipping, perhaps in even in aviation potentially, or certainly in like long distance trucking, for example, where electric sort of batteries might not do the job for you. Hydrogen might come in play when it comes to domestic heating. Highly, highly unlikely that we'll have them powering our homes. So it falls back to the solutions that Martin has just spoken to us about taking care of insulation, taking care of airproofing, and then thinking about low carbon heating and renewables into our homes.
0: Well, that's the end of that then. I, I quite like the idea that there is that there are just some diehard hydrogen fans <laughs> who listen to this podcast. I'm really into that. Don't know why that that's tickled me. Um, let's go on to, to go a bit deeper on the conversation about why we need to upgrade our homes. So you've both told us how important it is to do that. You know, it's about making them greener and more energy efficient, but it's also, as you said, Martin, about kind of adapting to a changing climate. We heard at the top of the show that the housing in the UK is some of the draftiest in Europe. So let's start with that. I'll come to you first, Chatty. How much of our housing isn't up to scratch?
1: Going back to what we discussed before about EPC, the Energy Performance Certificate, which comes in different bands. epc is roughly the standard that we want to get to at least by 2030. Eventually, we want to make them much more efficient, much more tighter. But EPCC seems to be like the standard we want to meet. There's a lot of debate on the EPC itself, whether that's a good enough indicator. That's the best we've got so far. (laughs) So we're working with that. And if you take that as the standard, then we've basically got about 19 million homes across the UK that aren't up to that standard. If you break that down further, you basically have about 10 million of them just in England in the owner-occupied sector, as we call it i.e. homes that have the owners of the property occupying the house itself, and then the rest breaks down into sort of social housing and private rented sector. So we're talking of not hundreds of thousands, but millions of homes across the UK that aren't up to scratch. But the worst part, this is something that really winds me up, is we still build homes today that aren't up to standard. (laughs) Uh, Certainly a bit better than EPCC, that is true. But when we've got the technology in place and even the cost actually works out, we should be building homes that are net zero energy as of today, as of yesterday. And yet we still keep building homes that need further retrofitting down the line, which seems absolutely criminal, but companies seem to sort of get away with that. So that's something worth highlighting, that it's not just about getting the existing housing stock, which is the bigger challenge. But also making sure we don't add to the problem by creating more housing that is of a inferior
2: standard.
0: Wow, so we're kind of actively moving uh, in the wrong direction there.
2: Not so encouraging. Well, I'd add to that, actually, um, Aisha. Yeah, more than I say that there are no houses in the UK that are up to what should be the proper standard. And as Chatty was saying, it is ridiculous. We are still building houses to the 2016 building regulations, which are some of the worst or the, the most lax in the whole of Europe, We're just building poor standard housing, even as we speak. It is ridiculous because in 10, 20 years' time, will be going back to retrofit the houses we're going to be building over the next ten years?
0: Yeah, I mean it's it's a real mess. So yeah, Martin. Following on from that, then, how can living in a leaky, drafty home, you know, actually affect someone's life? You're doing this this work, you know, every day. What are you seeing actually, kind of, as the consequences of this?
2: Yeah, I mean, it's, it ranges from a whole host of things. And clearly, there's an issue of just having to pay huge amounts of money for energy. And I think you made the very pertinent comment in your introduction you know some people are literally uh, making that choice between eating and heating and it's uh, that's just not acceptable. so there's the economic issues uh, of just having to spend huge amounts of money on energy. And whether that be gas or, or or electricity, but of course there's there are the health effects. And you know, if you're living in a drafty home, you are cold. If you're living in a home that's not well ventilated, which is might be the opposite, and you get a huge huge amount of condensation, now you're living in a home that is damp. These are ideal conditions for poor health, and particularly for children. So it's just not just about the the energy efficiency issues. There's some real social issues in here.
0: Absolutely. I mean, as you say, it's it's about quality and standard of living as well. I want to talk a bit more about the universal credit cut that was mentioned. I know that energy companies are collapsing and energy bills have also been going up a lot in in, in recent weeks, and that's only going to continue. Chatio, I wanted to ask, first of all, why is that happening? And second of all, how do you think that's going to kind of intersect with the universal credit cut and end of furlough? And what's that going to mean for folks who are kind of struggling to make ends meet?
1: As of now, all of that just sounds like bad news, uh, to be honest. JRF, Joseph Roundtree Foundation, basically put out some figures which cumulatively looked at, you know, what are the different variables that are causing energy bills to sort of rise or cost of living to rise. And they've estimated about £1,750 to be added on the living costs for households or families by April next year. So this is a combination of national insurance uh, hikes that the government's announced, furlough ending, UC credit uplift uh, ended, all of that combined at £1,750 pounds, uh, a year, which isn't a small amount, but there's no sort of mitigating policy that's been introduced to reduce that burden. government has introduced a and million million pound household support scheme, but if you really break that down, that probably comes to about £150 pounds to £200 pounds per household per uh, in the lowest income households, so about three to four million households. So it, it perhaps goes about a third of the way or even less than that in mitigating the problem. So we are talking about a significant challenge in terms of incomes falling, but expenditures rising, but support is not forthcoming from the government. So I think that's a big challenge. On the, on the bigger sort of energy crisis that we've had, I mean, the main factor behind a rise is wholesale gas prices going through the roof. That's because demand, especially industrial demand, for example, has come back with a vengeance almost after the pandemic. And demand in Asia, for example, for LNG has also sort of outstripped uh, supply. So that's been raising the prices as well. So we've got this sort of perfect storm of a variety of reasons. Basically, has meant that the amount that energy suppliers, our energy suppliers have to pay in the open market for gas has gone up tremendously. And at some point, they basically have to say, they'll have to pass these costs down to customers. And that's where the challenges have come so far. There's a limit to how much they can keep passing without really affecting the livelihoods of ordinary families. And we've got to that point where your energy regulator has come out and said, we're willing to let some costs be passed down to consumers. And that has meant those on, for example, prepayment meters will end up paying about £155 more on their energy bills, those sort of low-income households, fuel-poor households, will see about one hundred thirty-nine, one hundred forty pounds increase in their bills. So these are considerable rises in energy bills.
2: There's some some sort of pretty serious structural issues in the UK energy market as well, the way we've structured our, our energy markets as opposed to perhaps some of the other countries across Europe. I mean, is right. I mean, clearly there's been a huge increase in demand to move out of COVID. But um you know a lot of other countries uh, have hedged much better than we have you know effectively they've entered into long-term contracts with gas suppliers and they have a lot more storage than we do the UK just decided to shut down its gas storage uh, facilities where we now probably have a tenth of the storage uh, capacity than say maybe Italy or France and that means we're much more open to big fluctuations in day ahead gas prices whereas perhaps in Germany or Italy or France they've got much more long-term contracts in place and they've got say, two to three months of gas storage available so they can ride out big fluctuations in in day-to-day prices. And of course, we're now no longer part of the the EU energy market, which we were, which again, this had a partially had an impact on prices in the UK.
0: Hmm. we've spent a, a long time laying out the problem and I'm feeling relatively despairing. I want to talk about what we can do about this. Um, so if we want to upgrade our homes, we'll obviously need tradespeople to install heat pumps and insulation. So let's start with you, Chati. Can you tell me about whether the Great Homes Upgrade would create jobs?
1: Absolutely. I think that's one of the biggest benefits of this campaign that we're trying to push for, because if you look at any economic analysis out there in terms of job creation potential, retrofitting and sort of building and construction seems to be an area where for a million pounds invested the number of jobs you get is significantly higher than any other sector so that's one of the reasons why emerging from the pandemic when the jobs and the labor market is is in is a bit of a crisis retrofitting is one of those uh, areas arenas that investing heavily early on can create a lot of benefits in terms of jobs for the long term there's a wide range of job creation figures. What we've estimated is anywhere between 190 to 500,000 jobs could be created, depending on sort of the pace, the scale, and the kind of jobs that you count. You know, there are direct jobs, there are indirect jobs, and there's also induced jobs as part of the economy. And there's sort of permanent and temporary jobs as well, sort of considering the whole suite of jobs that could create, anywhere between 190,000 to 500,000 jobs could be created through the course of this decade. So we're talking of large numbers and every job you create is essentially adding to the economy, adding to the GDP. If you're re- really looking purely in terms of macroeconomic indicators, all of that is a net benefit to the economy.
0: Mm, I mean, it certainly seems like so. Martin, you work for a company which carries out home upgrades. So what kind of jobs are created when people are, are able to upgrade their homes?
2: it's a whole range of jobs and it, it ranges from sort of we've got master level MSc level design engineers who do the design work for us all the way across to electricians plumbers carpenters uh, people who put in roof insulation so it's a whole range of jobs from a range of different levels of skill but they all need to be there and they need to work as a team the designers have to understand how you design these things they have to understand some of the physics of buildings but the trades people need, need to be able to have a, a clear plan of what needs to be done and the skills to do it but there is a huge skills gap in the construction industry at the moment and where we haven't got the training in place to get skilled people up to the level we need to understand how we do need to retrofit houses and that's one of my big concerns if we want to scale up to the ability to deliver 19 million um, retrofitted homes in the next 10 years it will need a massive upscaling of training capabilities. So that's one big issue, I think. we need. Hopefully this campaign will also prize out from the government. The investment is not just, if you like, at the level of homes and putting in installation and draft proofing. It's making sure that the right people are coming through our universities and technical colleges who can really deliver on what's required. So the jobs creation area, aside of this, I think, is just a fantastic opportunity which we mustn't let slip.
0: Mm, yeah, I mean, it's... I was going to come to you as well on that, Chatty. If the government, so you know, as Martin was saying, this seems like something that is both about creating lots of jobs and also needing folks with the right skills. And if the government decided to to do the Great Homes Upgrade tomorrow, would we have enough people with the right skills to fill the jobs? And if not, what would we need to do about that?
1: Yeah, I think I think the good thing about this campaign is even even if the scale seems quite it is ambitious, no doubt, but we sort of ratchet up over a period of time, which means you're building in some slack, some flexibility to be able to sort of create that kind of workforce that we need. If you want to get to that stage tomorrow, we certainly clearly don't have the workforce today. I think the CITB, the Construction Industry Training Board, which is a body that looks into some of these very questions of, do we have enough skilled labor uh, in the construction sector, came up with some significant figures of gaps in the labor market on skills. Like for example, heat pumps. We do not have a lot of people who have the expertise in figuring out how to actually fit a heat pump into people's homes. But we need them, especially in circumstances where, for instance, actually your boiler broke down, the person coming to fix your boiler, if that person is also sort of adapted, understanding how a heat pump works, they might be in a position to give you some advice or guidance saying, this is how a heat pump would actually be better for you instead of replacing it with another boiler that kind of stuff. So there's a lot of skills to be sort of developed, a lot of labor to be skilled up. At the same time, a lot of new jobs and roles that can be created. Energy advisors, for example, is another role. We have a lot of them already, but uh, if you're talking about retrofitting 19 million homes, you need thousands of them dotted across the country, knocking on people's doors, giving them advice on energy efficiency and helping them transition to a more warm, comfortable home.
0: Okay. Okay. This all makes sense. Um so that's one thing we need to do. Making our homes warmer obviously sounds like it's going to really improve people's quality of life. We we've talked about this and part of that is also to do with pollution, right? So Martin just coming to you, what does how we power our homes have to do with the climate? We've touched on this a little bit already, but I want to get very uh specific.
2: Yeah, I mean it's fundamentally a, it's about greenhouse gas emissions. Now, every time we burn anything, any fossil fuel, it creates uh, at least several different types of greenhouse gases. Clearly the one that's probably most known is carbon dioxide. But there are other ones such as nitrous oxides as well, which uh, whenever you burn anything in air are also created. So every time we sort of uh, flick up the thermostat at home and the the gas boiler kicks in, it starts to burn gas and out of the chimney comes a mixture of water vapour, carbon dioxide, nitrous oxides, and a whole host of other stuff. But uh, that's the main component of what's happening, and those greenhouse gases get into the atmosphere and warm the climate up. And I think, as you said in your introduction, it's one of the most significant sources of carbon dioxide and greenhouse gas emissions. And that's something actually that's lost on the on the hydrogen lobby group, is even if you burn hydrogen, you'll still be producing nitrous oxides, etc. So it's uh, still will have a net impact on the climate. But fundamentally, we're just burning stuff and we've got to stop burning stuff because every time we set light to something, we create carbon dioxide. And as we know, that's not good for the planet or good for us.
0: Mm, Simple as that. Um, And Martin, what about local air pollution? How would uh, the great homes upgrade that we're talking about affect that?
2: Yeah, I mean, it's this um, – if we're burning particularly – I've talked a lot about burning natural gas, from methane, which is relatively clean in the sense of the local pollution it produces other than nitrous oxides, which are actually quite a serious lung irritant, for instance. So that would increase – unless sometimes you hear the term NOx, N-O-X, which is always produced when you burn uh, – almost anything in the atmosphere. So that would be, there'll be local concentrations of NOx's when you burn gas. But of course, that's not the only thing we burn in homes. Uh, We burn oil. There's still a significant number of houses, certainly in my area, that are still heated by coal, for instance, which you might not believe, but it is. And they will produce significantly more dangerous local pollutants, such as uh, you might come across the term particulate matter, basically soot. So very, very tiny particles, which, again, can get into your lungs. Um, There's significant evidence now. PM matter, particulate matter, can get into the bloodstream. It can even cross the blood-brain barrier, which means we're now beginning to see this particulate matter in the brains of children, for instance. So, uh, yeah, whichever way you look at it, burning stuff is uh, not a good way of going forward. We've got to stop burning stuff, basically.
0: Mm, So I want to come back to you, Chatty, just while we round up. To talk about the great homes upgrade and the specific proposals that you're kind of asking of the government and i know that labor the labor party has already endorsed some of them so what exactly is it that you're asking the government to do through the great homes upgrade
1: yeah i think the big ask is around investment because we know the reason why we haven't been able to do what everybody calls a low hanging fruit retrofitting energy efficiency is cost and finance that's been the biggest gap so far so our key ask, our number one ask, is around public investment. To be specific, we're basically asking for a commitment of 11.7 billion pounds over the next three years. So before the end of this parliament, about seven billion of that is for energy efficiency measures, insulation, etc. About 4.7 is for heat pumps, or you know, greening our heating. So that's the one sort of headline, finance-related ask. There's a few others more on policy and regulation. One on basically introducing tighter standards for energy efficiency. Right now, we've got some standards which ensure that if you are renting a property or about to sell a property, it needs to be of a certain EPC standard. Tightening that, I think, is a good idea, and that needs to be done soon. Second is on VAT. VAT on renovation is very high. Martin, I'm sure can speak to that. He works in the sector. (laughs) So uh, they're about 20%. Uh, There's an ongoing campaign called Cut the Watt on on renovation and repairs, uh, bringing it down to about 5% or even lower, I think would be very good. The third is looking at new grants, specifically for low-income households who would find the cost quite exorbitant of doing up their homes. How do we ensure that there's enough finance available for them to be able to do that? One of the ways for doing that is getting your public finance institutions. You've got the UK Infrastructure Bank that was announced earlier this year. You've got the British Business Bank that lends to small and medium enterprises. How do we get these institutions to actually provide more finance for landlords, for even tenants, for others in both the residential and commercial building sector to be able to taken cheap loans or zero interest loans perhaps to be able to do up their homes as well and the final thing is related to that on green mortgages it's a huge market you can imagine a lot of retail banks your Santander's your Barclays they've got a few instruments around green mortgages but the market is very very small so really scaling that up and homeowners being able to sort of Get favorable interest rates if they're able to do up their house or a top up on their mortgage to actually do up their house to a certain EPC standard. There are different ways of doing this, but ultimately, the loan that you're receiving on your property, a part of that should go into doing it up early on. So I think there are different ways of doing this, and these are some of the ideas that we have proposed. The final thing, perhaps, to say is you obviously want the entire housing stock, 19 million homes and beyond to be rising to a certain standard. But in terms of investing our resources early on, we think there are two categories of housing where we can do that much quicker. One is the social housing sector, where you've got a relatively good housing stock in terms of EPC, but we can do them up at scale. And the second is what are called off gas grid. About 15%, 20 to 15% of homes in the UK are not even connected to the gas grid. A lot of them are fuel-poor and in rural parts of the country. But there's an opportunity, perhaps, to not then connect them to gas, but instead shift them, sort of leapfrog them, if you will, towards low-carbon heating, like heat pumps, for example. So there's an opportunity there in these two categories of housing tenures, where we think some of these solutions could be applied at scale. So, yeah, a whole variety of finance and policy-related asks that are coming alongside this sort of campaign. And I'd argue all of these are urgent and necessary if you're trying to get this climate crisis under control.
0: I would certainly agree. I want to come to you, Martin, for the last two questions. I've got two kind of big chunky ones for you, but I think that they're a nice way to end. So first one is just, yeah, what support do you think the government should be giving you and and the people who are doing work um, in your area who want to upgrade their homes? And then a kind of second part of that is Insulate Britain have obviously been in the news a lot this week. Over 300 activists have been arrested after blocking the M25, calling for all UK homes to be insulated by 2030. But anyway, what other groups or organisations are out there fighting for a great homes upgrade that people can look
2: out for. So yeah, what support should the government be giving you and who else is out there? I think, um, and just building on what Charlie was saying, the one area we I think we do have to put quite a, a significant amount of resources into training and into upskilling. The current construction industry is just not used to building um, thermally efficient houses, not something they've ever had to really do. They've always worked to building regulations, are pretty lax when it comes to energy efficiency. Because um, yeah, one of the major constraints we have at the moment is just finding people who can do work. I mean, we're turning people away in terms of the heat pump installs at the moment because we're broadly fully booked until the 31st of March next year in heat pump installs. If we could find more plumbers and more electricians uh, uh, and more tradespeople, we could put more in. So uh, that's certainly one big ask. Is let's get a program of, of training in place right the way through our educational system. And it's not just about people coming out of technical colleges and universities. There's a tremendous willingness amongst existing tradespeople to learn how to do this. And they're more than willing to do it. But the training courses are not there. And the way our industry is structured is a lot of self-employed subcontractors. And it's very difficult for them to justify taking two, maybe three weeks off of work to get retrained in a new school because that's two or three weeks of not actually working and not earning a living. So we've got to think about how do we upskill the tremendous set of skills we already have in the industry. And I think Chad is also very right. We need some tax breaks as well. Financing this through ISIS and pension funds, giving them the tax breaks to allow them to invest in green bonds and get the same sort of tax breaks that the fossil fuel industry gets, which are absolutely enormous, by the way. Fundamentally, we do need that encouragement to make this as efficient, and as good value and as cheap as possible. In terms of who else is out there, well, yeah, it, it ranges from the people in Insulate Britain who are blocking roads through Extinction Rebellion, Greenpeace, the whole range, the Labour Party, elements of the Tory party, the transition movement. There's lots of people out there doing their own thing in many different ways. Some people have different approaches. But fundamentally, this has got to be about policy to start with. It's got to be about the existing government to set that policy and to provide the resources, the financing, the training, and take away those blockages that are stopping us doing what we really want to do.
0: Yeah, I mean, it absolutely seems seems like a solution which is kind of appropriate for the scale of the problem. And it's, yeah, I mean, it's definitely given me a lot to think about. I just moved into a new house yesterday, and I'm already going to be seeking out my EPC uh, rating and figuring out how I can improve it. But yeah, as you say, it's a long journey, and there's lots to do. So it sounds like there's a, a lot to be getting on with. But um, the work that both of you are doing seems to be a brilliant place to start. So thank you both so much for the work and for joining me to tell me about it. But that is, sadly, all we've got time for on this week's Weekly Economics podcast, although I'm sure that there's lots more to be said and hopefully we'll have you both back at some point to go into uh, all the other things that have come up there. But for now, Chaitanya Kumar, thanks so much for joining me. If people want to find out more about your work uh, and the Great Homes Upgrade, how can they do that?
1: Thanks, Aisha. Um, Greathomesupgrade.org, that is the website that we've created for this campaign. And New Economics Foundation is the organisation which is running the campaign along with a host of others. So you can check out the briefings, the policy detail behind this campaign and everything else on our websites.
0: Fantastic. And Martin Heath, thanks so much for joining me. If people want to find out more about all the amazing work you're doing, where can they go?
2: What should they read? If you want to know more about whole house retrofitting, heat pumps, solar PV, uh, two ways to get hold of me, uh, martin.heath at bes.coop, basings.energyservices.coop or martin at yourenergyyourway.co.uk. Um, let's see if we can work together to, bit by bit, rebuild the, the infrastructure of the UK.
0: Let's hope so. Brilliant. Lots of options there for getting involved. Thank you both so much. That is it for today's weekly economics podcast, but we'll be back soon with more. If you've enjoyed this episode, please tell someone about it. As always, you can drop us a line with your comments and questions. We're at NEF on Twitter. The Weekly Economics Podcast is brought to you by the New Economics Foundation, produced by Becky Malone and researched by Margaret Welsh. I'm Aisha Thomas-Smith. Stay safe.